Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. Hope you're enjoying season four now, which is great. And I'd love you to subscribe and like if you're enjoying the series. Today we have a great guest, um, one of my real, you know, nerd topics. You've probably heard if you've uh, followed me on social media or listened to some of the podcasts already, you know that bats are um, very much a, a kind of a nerd topic of mine. So I'm delighted to welcome Kate Stoner, who's the chief executive of the Bat Conservation Trust, to talk with me today about all things batty. Kate, thanks for joining me. That's okay. Thank you very much it's, for having me. Yeah, great to have you on. Um, it's taken us a while to find a, a, a diary slot that works <laughs> for both of us, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I don't know about you, but um, I certainly this year with uh, lockdown and cancelling events and all sorts. I'm definitely having bat withdrawal symptoms this year. How about you? Well, funnily enough, I'm actually seeing slightly more bats because normally normally I would be commuting to London at least three days a week um, and get, right. getting back quite late, which you could argue isn't really an issue for bats, but it does mean I'd usually miss the dusk um, yeah. this, this time. Um, I'm obviously at home all the time, and so it means actually being able to go out a little bit into the parks and, and see a few bats over, over my street and discovered some bats nearby to me that I didn't know that we had. So I've probably seen Great. as many bats as I have done in previous years. Good stuff. Good stuff. Whereabouts in the country are you located? Um, I'm in Cambridge. Ah, so, and yeah. anything unusual around your neighbourhood? Oh no, nothing nothing fancy, but I'm I'm a big fan of pipistrels. You know, they they're they're always there and uh and they do beautiful flight patterns and they make a yeah. nice noise on a bat detector. So I'm 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 always really happy. I found a couple of uh, pips at the end of our road when I was went out for a walk in the evening and there was two of them two of yeah. them dancing around and that, that that keeps me happy. I'm I'm not fussy. <laughs> good, good. You're an equal equal bat opportunity as person. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, no, I've enjoyed the Pippistrels as well. Um and like you, you know, I've kind of had maybe had more time to kind of go out and, and see them in the evenings at dusk. But um mm. definitely missing putting on putting on events and, and walks and talks with bat detectors yeah. and things. Yes, actually seeing other people at the same time as bats is definitely something that we haven't been able to do so much. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So, Kate, how long have you been um, chief executive at the Bat Conservation Trust? So, I I think I became joint CEO in 2014 um, with yeah. the current CEO at that time. And then she left about a year and a half ago. So I've been sole CEO for about a year and a half now. Well, that's, I think it's probably longer than that, actually, but this year has gone so quickly. Yeah, I know. It's mad. It's crazy. And um, were you kind of a member of them for a long time before that? Yeah. A BCT? No. Well, so I, I've been a staff member since 2002. Uh, okay. But um, I was very lucky, actually. My interest in wildlife has been from when I was a, a young child, but my specific interest in bats was much later in life. Um, and I was very lucky to have gained that interest in bats around the same time that a job came up at BCT. And I just happened to have the, the transferable skills to get a job as training development officer at BCT and and the rest as they say is history so I, I'm really lucky actually that I was able to make that that career change uh, later on in oh great yeah yeah people ask me actually the same thing like when when did you get into bats and I was fairly late very much a, a generalist naturalist yeah. all my life and uh, kind of got into bats by accident a few years ago to be honest 
<laughs> I think many people do. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, and tell us about Back Conservation Trust. What what is the kind of the remit, and um, why do they exist? What are they What are they involved in? Okay, so um, Back Conservation Trust is the only national organisation in the UK in Great Britain that's solely devoted to the conservation of bats and their habitats in the UK. Um, and our work spans a lot. We, our, our objectives are discover, act and inspire. Uh, so the discover is finding out more about bats, obviously, and how to use the landscape. And that's where our monitoring and our science programmes sit. And then yeah. act is a, is a, spans a lot of work. So it's about taking practical conservation actions. So that could be working with partners such as bat groups. It could be working with um, industry such as the built environment, agriculture, forestry. Um, and it also covers things like influencing policy. Um, and as we all know, we need to do quite a lot of that sometimes to secure our bat populations. And then Inspire is obviously incredibly important. And that's something that we do uh, very much through our helpline, but also some on the ground work. And again, that's something that bat groups do a huge amount of. Um, so it's all about inspiring and engaging people to, to support our objectives in conserving bats. Um, Great. And BCT actually came out of bat groups. So we're very much a, a grounds, a ground roots formation uh so some some organizations have the kind of the headquarters and then they they, they set up different branches locally whereas we were born of the back groups there was a, a, a an organization called back groups of britain um, and they decided that they needed a national voice for bats and yeah so bct was formed um just just under uh, 30 years ago where uh 1991 was when we were formed so it's our birthday next year oh wow 1991 doesn't seem that long ago to me. I'm, 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 we're getting old. Well, I am anyway. No, I am too. God, that's depressing, isn't it? 30 years ago. And um, obviously, like part of the reason that you exist is to kind of, I guess, change hearts and minds about bats because bats are number one a very kind of um, misunderstood group of animals, mm. but also there's an element of kind of fear and ignorance around them would that be fair to say yeah yeah that's absolutely fair to say we, uh, the helpline is particularly important um in dispelling those myths but also the back groups on the ground so you know there are all the kind of the urban myths around them getting tangled up in your hair and then you've got the the concern around having vampire bats uh, a lot of people yeah. still think that we have vampire bats in the uk when in fact we only have three three species in the world and they're all in south and central america yeah and, People think they're rodents, so they worry that if they've got them in their houses, that they might get, um, they might have build nests and leave nesting material, or they might chew wires. So yeah, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of um, a lot of myth busting that needs to happen. Definitely, yeah, yeah, and it's really important because um, the status of bats in the UK, they're all they're all protected species, right? Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah, they're all yeah. protected, um, and that's because they have uh, the numbers have declined dramatically in the UK over the last century. Um, and there's been a number of factors for that. So habitat and roost loss, um, agricultural change in practices. Uh, in the, the 80s, there was a lot of toxic timber treatment chemicals, which thankfully have, um, that's a, and that's, that, that situation has now improved, uh, pesticides and loss of insects. So there's lots of, there's lots of reasons for their decline. Um, yeah. And so, so in 1981, the Wildlife and Countryside Act came into play. And then in 1994, the Habitats Regulations. So they, yeah, all of our UK species are protected by law. Yeah. And am I right in saying, hopefully I am, I'm a bit rusty on my bat walk info now at the moment <laughs> after this year, but we've got 17 breeding species in the UK, right? Correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. And um, how many of those are, you know, fairly widespread versus how many are like really, really rare or specialist kind of um, areas? Um, I guess we've probably got about, well, it's widespread and specialist. They're, they're different. So some of them have got very widespread distribution. So the, the common Soprano pipistrels, uh, the dog Benton's bat, the brown longit bat, they're all relatively common and they're all fairly widespread throughout the whole of the country. Um, yeah. What real rarities like the grey long-eared bat um, which are both very small in terms of the numbers we have we currently have about a thousand individuals left um, oh wow yeah they're very very endangered and then we've got other other um, species like the horse do horseshoe bats which are again fairly rare and are only found in certain areas of the country they're both in the south south and southwest and um, some parts of wales yeah um, as you said we've got some specialists so the, the bextines bats for example are only found generally where they've got good quality woodland and again yeah. tend to be found towards the south of the country so we have we've definitely got some some generalists that are widespread but then it, it depends a little bit on distribution in terms of geography and others are uh, it's more to do with the habitat that they're found in yeah and then there's um a few kind of vagrant or migrant species that occasionally turn up here is that right we do yes so uh well we have the nathusius pipistrelle which is now one of those 17 breeding species but when it when it was first found we thought it was uh purely a migrant uh we do yeah. cools pipistrelle sometimes um and i think there's, there's some debate as to whether they might be starting to um to breed here but we don't know that for sure yet i don't think well no one's told me yet anyway <laughs> Yeah, you haven't got that memo yet. No, 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 maybe I will have by the time it gets out. We can we can hope for twenty twenty one maybe. But obviously, need- climate change uh, potentially will have an impact on the bats that we have in the UK. So the greater horseshoe bat, for example, um, we know is one that's likely to be um, the distribution is likely to change. The climate change. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if we did start to see more bats coming into the country, but also the bats that we have moving slowly northwards as things get warmer. Yeah. Am I right in saying I saw some news recently about horseshoe bats showing up in Kent or Sussex or yeah, somewhere? That's right. Yes. So historically, if you look on the uh, the national, uh, the NBM network uh, maps, there are some historical uh, historical records there. But yes, that was quite uh, quite exciting. Um, the Kent bat group is very excited about that, as you can imagine. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Yeah, that's brilliant. And um, you mentioned the Nathusius pipistrelle. So yeah. going back going back some years, even kind of the common and soprano pipistrelle, we added to our uh, knowledge and our number of bats by realising some species we formerly thought were the same yeah. actually are different. How long ago did we start to kind of realise and how did we realise that actually some of the species were, um, were separate? Um, well, with the, the common primary pipistrels, that, um, the, as you say, they're cryptic species. So it was it was down to the echolocation calls because they echolate yeah. the peak frequency is different. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so the common pipistrel peak frequency is 45, and the soprano is 40, uh, 55 kilohertz. Um, and also yeah. DNA analysis. So those are the two ways that those were found. The Nathusius. So the Nathusius is technology helping us, yeah, technology yeah. and science, effectively. Yeah. yeah, and Nathusius is not so much that it was um, not separated out; it's just we didn't realise we had it breeding in the UK until a little bit more recently. Yeah, and um, remarkable results from ringing surveys, aren't there? So um, fairly near me is Bedfont Lakes, where where mm, a lot of them right. yeah. um, breed, and they ringed, they recovered a ringed female in Latvia. 
Yeah. That bred at, at, um, at Bedfont Lakes near Heathrow Airport. Yeah, I, didn't realize, I didn't realize you were close to an enthusiast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the yeah, yeah. enthusiasts, I should say. We get them in Ealing coming along um, the Brent River Valley, basically. So um, we picked them up a few times in Ealing, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the Nathalie Fifistrout project has been amazing in terms of part, part of the aims of the project were to, to find out more about the um, status of the, the species in the UK and Great Britain, um, whether it's a resident and breeding and trying to find more maternity, maternity roosts, uh, but also find out more about the migration. And as you say, uh, we've discovered we've had nine long-distance migratory records now um and that 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 one that you mentioned is one of the longest actually uh we've had some others from latvia and lithuania um and we've also had our bats that we've ringed in the uk turn up in in europe in the netherlands and belgium and most recently in poland in 2019 and these are tiny they're tiny tiny bats you know the, the, the body is not much longer than your thumb really and they're they're flying around 1500 kilometers it's just incredible it is incredible, isn't it? I talk to I talk about it on um, the bat walks we do at Eating Wildlife Group, and you know, talk about our resident ones and migrant ones. And people are always like, "How does a bat swim? You know, swim enough, fly um, all that way and and fly across the sea?" Like mm. people are just astounded that that can even happen. It's amazing, as, isn't as, it? As am I, if I'm honest. And uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess little birds do it as well. They we must, do. They we must do, do yeah. it a long way, but um, yeah, fascinating that they can do that. And the other thing, Kate, that I read recently is uh, maybe some good news, which we all need in uh, in nature conservation at the moment. Mm. But um, is it true that potentially some species are actually on the increase in the UK? Yeah, we have had, as I mentioned before, we've had those um, dramatic declines over the last century. But some of our species are just starting to show early signs of recovery. So um, our National Bat Monitoring Programme report for 2019 shows increasing trends for the two horseshoe species, the greater and lesser horseshoe, um, and the common bifistrel. And those are that's we've been monitoring those since 1999. So they've increased during that time. And some of our other species are also shown to be stabilising. So it, it's good. Really, really good news. And it does suggest that uh, the combination of legislation and education and conservation action is, is working. But we, we do still have work to do as a lot of the threats are still out there. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned, obviously, one of our rarer species, the grey long-eared. Yeah. Um, why Why is that one specifically so rare? Um, so it depends on unimproved grassland, and we have lost a lot of unimproved grassland in the country. Okay. Uh, so we've, as I mentioned before, we've only got around a thousand species left, um, in, not species, sorry, individuals left in the UK, um, and yeah. eight maternity roosts. And a lot of that is, it's with all bats, really, it's kind of down to they need a, they need somewhere to live, the roost, they need somewhere to forage, and they need a way of getting there. Yeah. And it's becoming increasingly fragmented. So although all of those maternity roosts are in the southern part of the country, there isn't really the foraging uh, capacity that they need around that, but there's also no connectivity between those roosts. So they're in, they're at risk of becoming isolated as well as as well as very rare so because they need basically wildlife corridors to provide cover for them to move from one area to the next yeah, for right yeah. and feeding and hibernating as well right absolutely yes i mean we, we know very little about their hibernation habits we're we're struggling to find the maternity roots at the moment because there's so few but we we had a project that we did with um a scientist a few i can't remember how many years ago it was now but we, we found out a lot about the grey long-eared bats and that that's how we know that we do have information about roughly how many we actually have in the UK. Okay. And we know those maternity roosts. But there is there is good news. There is good news um, because we've been 
we had a specific very long-eared project running for the last two or three years, and that's yeah. the Back from the Brink project, which is a, a collaborative project covering a number of different taxonomic groups. Um, yeah. uh, and that's focused on working with landowners to improve improve that foraging and connectivity around those most isolated maternity routes for the species. And it's it's been a real success, actually. The landowners have been really engaged. Um, and as a result of the project, nearly 60 he- hectares of land is in the process of being restored to unimproved grassland. And that's outside of the, the countryside stewardship, the, you know, the agri-environment schemes. And then if Great. you include measures under the countryside stewardship scheme, that actually means um, we're looking at around a total increase of 250 hectares on the management for the grey long-eared bat, which is which is fantastic news. So it, it, it means that although we've got a lot of work to do, if, if you approach people in the right way and you engage them, they're, they're really happy to help, which is really good. That's brilliant. And is that all in the one area of the country that that population yeah, exists? It's, it's um, in the south. So it's mainly uh, the Devon and along the south coast a little bit as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that seems like quite a stronghold for um, several of our rarer species. Is that just to do with the the type of terrain, the type of countryside and the connectivity of those kind of habitats? Yeah, it's it's around the terrain and and the roosting availability as well. Um, Certainly some of the some of the horseshoes, as you say, are down, are down that way as well. Um, there's quite a lot of woodland there, there, so it means the woodland specialists are also able to access that. Climate is probably a factor as well. Um, it's oh, yeah. warmer warmer generally in the, in the southern parts of the country, so there's quite a lot of factors. Yeah, so the, the warmth might influence maybe kind of the length of time throughout the year that they can feed on insects and things, would it? Potentially, yes, potentially. And as I say, it's something that we, we are expecting that – with climate change, um, we want to, again, try and make sure that our species are resilient and make sure that we have got those corridors and connectivity so that if they are needing to to move a little bit further high up in, in the country, they've actually got the connectivity and the networks to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned the importance of um, maternity roosts, and I've been out uh, surveying with uh, Sussex Back Group, uh, oh, which is great. Um, and we had Beck signs, which is brilliant. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, but they were doing um, roosts or they were doing surveys on the maternity roost to try and find them on various species that we caught. But yeah. just for anyone listening, can you explain why the maternity roosts are just so important in terms of the bat's kind of um, lifespan and reproductive potential and, and um, what how they behave at a maternity roost? Mm, OK, so um, bats are very long lived, um, and but they also reproduce very slowly for such a, a small creature. So the majority of bats Maybe they won't breed for the first couple of years, and then they will normally only have one baby per year. So if a, if a maternity roost or a, a colony is lost, then it does take them a very long time to reproduce. They yeah. are very loyal to their roosts, the majority of them. So um, if, if a roost is destroyed for some reason, then it means they have to find somewhere with exactly the right conditions. And it may be that, uh, you know, because we have lost a lot of habitat, they, they will struggle to find that. So it can have an impact on the survival. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the, the way they use them, they, they breed in the summer. And so the females will gather together in a maternity roost and give birth to their young. And they, they're very vulnerable to disturbance, obviously, at that point. Um, so you need to be very careful not to disturb the roosts. And then they will be there. It depends on the species a little bit, but the young are usually fully independent by around sort of five to seven weeks. And then, and then okay. they will... Usually disperse. It depends on the species again. So the brown long-eared bat, for example, um, sometimes roosts in attics in houses, and sometimes they will stick around all year round. But the majority, yeah. majority of our bats will go somewhere different to hibernate. Um, but those paternity roosts, because they are so loyal to them, and because they need particular conditions 
for them to work for them. Um, if they lose them, it can have a, a serious impact on the populations. And you could have like hundreds of, of female individuals of a species coming together from miles and miles around to the one maternity roost. Isn't that right? Potentially. Again, it depends on the species. So uh, the yeah. Sopranic particularly has quite a large roost, especially up in yeah. Scotland. So you'll sometimes get a roost of up to a thousand, even 2,000 of them. They're very tiny, but you know, when you go wow. there, they, they take up a reasonable amount of space. Um, but yeah. some of the other species are much smaller. So the brown long-eared, it's more likely to be sort of maybe 10, 15 um, and yeah. sometimes the maternity, it depends a little bit as well how rare the bat is and how many individuals you've got. So, um, But yeah, the, lo- the long-eared bats tend to be smaller, smaller maternity roosts. Yeah, yeah. And what kind of, going back to basics, what kind of roost sites um, do bats require? What are, what's the diversity of, of kind of uh, habitats they use for roosting different so, times of the year? Again, it depends on the species. Uh, so you yeah. have crevice-dwelling bats, um, so like pipistrels, for example. Um, they're bu- very building-reliant. Um, you will find them in bat boxes and trees sometimes, but generally they're building-reliant. The serotine bat, again, is also quite building-reliant, as are the two horseshoe bats. But they all need quite different types of bits of the building. <laughs> so the, the pipistrels will tuck into little spaces, so you might find them under tiles or um, under soffit boards. Serotines are obviously a little bit bigger, but again, they're still crevice dwellers. Uh, whereas the horseshoes need space; they hang up um, upside down. They're the, the classic bat hanging upside down, aren't they? Uh, yes, the one that everyone thinks all bats look like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, the horseshoes. So they need they need that space, uh, but they also need space to fly around before they 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 go out to forage, and, and they also need a, a quite a large entrance to be able to get back into the into the roost. Uh, long eards again. Long eards you will find um, in woodland and in um, in buildings in terms of their roost. But again, you do often find them in buildings. And unlike the pipistrels, they'll tend to be more in the if it's a house, sort of attic void. And they again, they need some space to fly around before they go out. And then we've got other species, like I mentioned, the Becksteins earlier. And you, um, they're very woodland dependent, so they they're much more likely to be found in uh, in tree roosts. Barbastels, again, they're quite likely to be found in tree roosts. Um, Naturas used to be found a lot in barns, and of course, so they've been affected by all the barn right. uh, yeah. Again, they're, they're, they're crevice dwellers. They'll kind of tuck into the tuck into the little spaces um, by the rafters. So it really depends on the species. They, they do vary hugely. It's, um, it's something that we we have to talk to people a lot when they, they generalise about bats is that Actually, it's 17 different types of animals, and they're, they're as different. All different behaviours. Or as a sort of a stalk to a to sparrow, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're, they are completely different in what they need and in the way they behave as well. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of brings me on to, you know, the diversity of bats is, is really important. They're what's called an indicator species. The more, the, the higher the number of bats you have, but also the higher diversity of species you have can really indicate the value of a habitat, can't it? Yes, absolutely. They are actually a, a UK indicator um, from DEFRA. Um, and as you say, they're an indicator of a healthy environment. We, we sometimes call them the, the canary in the mine. Um, yeah. they're, a, they're a top predator, a top nocturnal predator. Um, and so they can indicate, you know, they need lots of insects, for example. So if there's lots of bats around, then there's likely to be lots of in, insects. And because they have such a range of different types of habitats, you can find them in most habitats or find a species in most habitats they're actually a really good indicator of um, a healthy environment across across the UK and they can indicate changes in other aspects of biodiversity or the or the environment. 
Yeah, because they all kind of rely on different ways of feeding and different insect species as well, don't they? Exactly. Yes, they, they all have different insects that they, they prefer in terms of size and, and type. Um, it's probably also worth mentioning that they're really invaluable measure of the health of our towns and cities. Um, and obviously, a lot of people have been have been in the towns and cities through not necessarily through choice recently, but they haven't been able to get out yeah. of the country. But if a town supports healthy populations of a number of bat species, there's actually a good chance that town is also a healthy environment for any mammal, and that includes people. So they're, they're a good in- indicator for biodiversity, but also for us. Absolutely. Yeah, we've used we've used them almost as our emblem of Ealing Wildlife Group um, because Excellent. people get behind bats, they get behind green spaces and connectivity of green spaces and all the rest. So, um, yeah, that's where that's where we were born from. So we've made bats very much our our emblem <laughs> group yeah. of animals. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you mentioned, Kate, um, like one or two of the kind of conservation programs you have, like Back from the Brink for the mm-hmm. Grey Long Eared and things. What other kind of um, conservation programs and monitoring programs does the Bat Conservation Trust run? Um, so we've got the National Bat Monitoring Program, which I mentioned a couple of times, um, and that's yeah. an annual series of bat surveys, and it's undertaken entirely by volunteers, and that allows us to monitor changes in our British bat populations. And so that involves, we use data from four different surveys. We've got the, the roost count, which is where people count uh, bats coming out of their roost. We've got the field survey, which is where people do a walked transect, and they count four different types of bats, um, pipistrelle, the two most common pipistrelle species, uh, the serotine and the noctule. We've got the, water, the waterway survey, which is where people walk a transect along um, a waterway. And yeah. the Benton's bats. And then we've got the hibernation counts, which are usually done via bat groups and they obviously need to be um, licensed, uh, licensed bat worker undertaking those. And that's where people go into hibernation roosts um, and, and count whatever bats they find there. So we don't necessarily know which species those are going to be. Um, yeah. But uh, and it's really it's really good because it means that we've got most of the species that we monitor are actually surveyed at more than one stage of their annual life cycle, which is, is makes the trend just a little bit more robust. Yeah. And you're building up that data for years and years at this stage, probably, are you? Yes, yes. So we started that program in 1999. Um, so I'm, I can't do the maths very quickly, but <laughs> I know yeah. we, I know we had our 20th birthday not so far along. I think, I think we're going to be 25 the same year that we're th- that the VCT is 30 from my memory. So. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, a long time ago, longer than we think. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, we've been at VCT, but it, yeah, it's, it's a really crucial, a crucial program because the data that we collect. Um, not only allows us to produce population trends, but it also is used by the government and, and other conservation organisations to monitor the health of our environment. Um, and inform Brilliant. So. Yeah. And um, how can citizen science help? Do do members of the public get involved in any of those? Um, or do you need to be like a member or an expert in bats to, to do those? Absolutely not. No, we absolutely rely on the members of the public. And we've got, I mentioned right. four surveys there. So the hibernation counts, as I mentioned, needs to um, you need to have a license and do that with a bat group. Uh, the roost count, if if you have a roost or you know of a roost in the area, that's just a question of, of counting the bats out. So you don't need any special equipment, although a little tally counter might be helpful. I was going to say, a clicker is good, isn't <laughs> it? Keep track. <laughs> Especially if you've got one of the big roosts. Um, and a bat, a bat detector is obviously good as well if, you, if you're not sure what the species are, so, so you can make sure you have the the species correct but if you if you know the roost is a particular species then you don't necessarily have to have the bat detector um for the field service you do need a bat detector but you can often borrow one um and th- there are a smallish number of species and we do actually have quite a lot of training videos and 
uh, tutorials on the website just to help you um, learn to identify those bats. And, and we previously we used to have training courses face to face, and but we've actually we've actually translated quite a lot of those into online. So we're still able to do some of those training courses, which is good. And then, yeah, I was going to give a big plug to your uh, your training resources. Brilliant oh, stuff you. on the website. So if you're interested in bats at all, you could spend days on the Bat Conservation Club website learning about them. It's great. We do have a we do have a lot of information on there. It must be said. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I love it. Um, and then and your YouTube channel as well is good. <laughs> yeah, I think we do have a YouTube channel. I feel like I should know that, but um, I don't think we use it as much as we could do. But we do, we do have one. Yeah. Um, and we, and if you have no experience, no equipment whatsoever, we also have a, a survey called the Sunset Sunrise Survey, which I actually did myself for the first time this year. Um, and that's where you can just sit in the garden uh, or you can sit in the park and you're just counting the number of bats you see, if you see any at all. Um, and then if you want to be super keen, you can do it again in the morning at sunrise and again, and then look for bats swarming before they return to the roost. And that's something that we've really promoted during lockdown because you don't even need to leave. If, if you even if you haven't got a garden, you can actually do it from your window. You can just look outside your window. So it's one that we we promoted a lot this summer because it meant that people could get a little bit of experience of nature without actually being able to get out and about. Very good, very good. Yeah, I'm yet to find a roost. Frustratingly, in Ealing, um, I'm always on the lookout, and people giving me tips, but I've yet to find for sure where where they're coming from. <laughs> Yeah, mysterious. Um, you mentioned the hibernation roost surveys. So obviously, you know, uh, people need to be trained and licensed um, bat workers to go into hibernation roost. Why is that? Um, it's because I mentioned maternity roosts being quite vulnerable, but hibernation roosts are even more vulnerable. Um, when when bats go into hibernation, they, they go into torpor and they, they need the conditions to be, they fatten up before they go into hibernation, as a lot of animals do. Um, and if they're woken up, then that means that the um, the environment gets a lot it's a lot warmer with people going into it. They're more likely to wake up and they're more likely to use that stored body fat, and it makes them it makes it a lot harder for them to survive come spring. So hibernation yeah. plants. Um, first of all, people obviously need to understand what they're looking for. They need to actually understand and they need to be able to identify the bats. So there's a technical element to it. There's no point yeah. for people going in there if they can't identify the bats. But there's also um, a protection point is that you can only have a certain number of people in there um, and they need to understand the the impact that that's going to have on the bats. So a hibernation cat would normally only be done maybe two or three times in the winter. So in, in Cambridgeshire, we do them in one in uh, December, one in January, one in February. And it's kind of a case of in and out as quickly as you can, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends very much on the type of hibernation cat. So some of them, for example, are ice houses where you kind of just dip in, have a quick look round for the torch and you might, you might see a few bats. It's quite quick. Yeah. But they're also if you're doing a sort of big cave or a big tunnel, um, then it, you're going to be in there for two or three hours counting the bats. Yeah. It's a larger, it's a larger area, so um, you're less likely to be to warming up in the same way. But it's you still need to be very conscious of it, though. Yeah, and it's a pretty um, you know tricky little job to be checking all of those little crevices and cracks and, and holes yeah. in the brickwork. That, isn't it? It's a real privilege, though. Um, there's a there's a tunnel in Bedfordshire. I haven't done it for a long time now, but um, there's a yeah. There's so there's so many little crevices and cracks. It's a real it's a real art, and you sometimes you only see an ear or a, a foot, and you have to try and try and work out oh, right. from that. But um, but it's a privilege to be able to see them so close, actually, because you know so often we see them flying around, but we don't necessarily see them that closely. So yeah, 
hanging out, literally. Absolutely, yes. Or, or tucking in in some cases. Tucking in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that reminds me of the uh, the railway tunnel in um, in Sussex with the Greater Mouseard. Oh yes. The little, the famous loner. Tell yeah. us about him. Well, he he's well, he was officially extinct. <laughs> Um, and then they found it. I think it was 2001 or 2002. They found a single male um, in a hibernation, hibernation. And is it our, our biggest bat, biggest UK bat? Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's quite. It's, it's bigger than all of our other bats. Mm. Um, and and we found him year on year, and every year we kind of waited for a report. Uh, this year, um, well, they've not done, they're not able to do the hibernation counts um, coming up now. But last year, so 2019, 20. Um, they didn't see him, um, and we don't necessarily know whether we'll be able to find out whether he's going to be there this year. So we're not quite sure what's happened to him. But um, yeah, so we're so, kind of hooks a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so that's why we always say you know we've got seventeen breeding species, but eighteen resident. Is that right? right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, so a, a technicality. What happens? We'll still have seventeen breeding breeding species, but yeah, we we just don't know what's happened to our, our 18th resident. And you knew it was him because he's got a, an identifying ring on his yes, wing. Yes, I think he was ringed when he was two or three. Um, mm. so, you know, we know he's he's been around for a fair few years so far. Yeah, and they they do live a long time for such small animals, don't they? They do, um, and that's something that oh, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinates me actually about bats is that they are so tiny, but they live a proportionally long time. Um, one of as an example of a Brant's bat, which is. Just a little bit longer, a little bit like Nathesias actually is a little, the body is just a little bit longer than your thumb. Um, and and mm. for example, that lived just over 40 years. Wow. Um, I think I found this out when I was probably about 40 and I, I just couldn't quite get my head around it. <laughs> yeah, that is mad, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but we had a, a fascinating talk from Professor Emma Teeling at the National Bat Conference last year. And she's looking uh, at the genetic reasons by why bats might have this exceptional longevity and she's explained that only 19 mammal species live proportionally longer than humans given their body size and, and 18 of those are bats so uh they, yeah they're pretty special yeah 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 and there's a lot we still don't know about them isn't there yes absolutely she's she's been doing work on sequencing bat genomes i'm not i'm, I'm not a bat geneticist i'm afraid so i'm, I'm not going to be able to go into all this <laughs> that's all right but she's uh, she's sequencing those to just try and understand what it is about the genetic adaptations that might explain those traits so yeah, yeah there's ongoing research at the moment but uh, it's really exciting yeah and you mentioned or you alluded to the fact that a lot of people kind of you know um misconceived them as flying rodents and yeah the german name is um flettermouse isn't it yeah, flettermouse. Flettermouse. <laughs> so it doesn't it doesn't help when they're actually called flying mice uh, sometimes <laughs> I always say kind of rodents live fast, die young, um, produce loads of offspring. Bats are the exact opposite, aren't they? Exactly. They're the absolute opposite. Um, and and it's, it's, it's frustrating because it, people do misunderstand that. But when you explain that they only have one baby a year and they, that they live so long, you know, vivistrels even can live up to sort of 18, 19 years, which, again, is, is incredible. So, um, yeah, so they're more like, more like elephants or people, really, in terms, of their, in terms of the length of time that they live, not rodents. 
Yeah, yeah. And they're good news to have around. The other fact that I always throw out and people are like, wow, that's amazing, is um, a single pipistrelle can feed, can eat 3,000 midges in a single night. Yeah. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I'm mean, i never quite sure whether that's been fully quantified. It's obviously been extrapolated from somebody that's been yeah. <laughs> counting feeding buzzes or something. But yeah, I mean, they, they do eat a huge number of um, insects. And they're, they're really important both in the UK and, and worldwide um, in terms of um, eating pests. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, there's been yeah. work done in the U in the um, US um, and also in Europe, uh, just showing how many pests that they actually eat. And and the and and um, in the US, they talked about you know millions and billions of pounds um, that essentially are being it's, it, the bats save them millions and billions of pounds because they're eating the pests and they're not having to spend yeah. pesticides. So yeah. So their economic impact is massively positive, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And just going to like kind of practical considerations in the UK for people mm-hmm. that are maybe not too familiar with bats and things. Um, advice if people uh, discover they have bats in their home or property. Obviously, the first thing is don't freak out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that's a very good, very good first advice. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I so think the first thing is, yeah, don't, you don't need to worry about having bats in your roof. As we've already discussed, they're not rodents. They're not going to nibble or damage the wires. They're not going to build the nest. They're not going to expand in population hugely like like rodents um, and they're also really clean they spend a, they're quite sociable animals and they can spend quite a lot of time grooming so you're not it's not like you have a, a dirty animal in your roost um as we've also mentioned bats are protected so if you've got any concerns about your roost or if you do need to do works that affect it you should seek advice from the the, the relevant statutory nature conservation body um, and in england the, the bct helpline runs that service on behalf of natural england um, and in many, in many cases, for minor works, um, so for example, if you need to get your soffit boards uh, sorted or just a few tiles on the roof, um, they'll be able to send out a trained roost visitor to inspect your roost and identify the bat species and, and provide advice free of charge. Um, or yeah. they'll be able to advise you on the best course of action. Um, and in some cases, it may be possible to give advice over the phone. So sometimes people just aren't sure about uh, just aren't sure about bats and they don't know what they need to do or if they do need to do anything. So in those cases, it's very easy to give advice over the phone. Yeah, great. And um, what if a bat comes into gets into your home itself? What's the advice then? So if it's just, it depends how it's happened. So if it's just uh, sometimes, particularly when the young are starting to fly and they're a little bit wobbly, <laughs> wobbly on the wing, yeah. um, then they may get they may fly into an open window, in through an open window after an insect, for example. So if you've actually seen a bat come through the window and it's flying around, it's obviously just got stuck in the room. Um, and you, you can see that it's 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 healthy and it's able to get back out again. The best thing to do is just to open the window wide, crawl the curtains wide, um, shut the door, and uh, turn off the lights. And they'll you know, nine times out of ten they'll make their own way out. Yeah. If they're if they're coming into the house uh, because perhaps there's a a gap, so if they're roosting in the in the roof, for example, and there's a gap, um, and it may be that they're they're coming through. It doesn't happen that often, but it, it can do. Um, then in that situation, you'd, you'd want to call uh, the VCT helpline or the statutory nature conservation body, um, and a, a roost visitor would be able to help advise about how you could you could plug up that gap. So they're they're still able to roost in the roof, but they're not getting into the house themselves. Um, as I say, it's, it's always important to, to seek advice about that, but it, it, it's usually very easy to resolve. Yeah, yeah. And if you come across then finally a bat like on the ground, indoors or outdoors, it looks like it's not very healthy. What should you do? Yeah, so um, that happens quite a lot, sadly. Um, sometimes it might be brought in by a cat, um, it might have been injured, or sometimes um, they may just be dehydrated or 
not not got enough food um that has been a, a situation i think over this last this last year there seemed to be quite a lot coming into care um so the, the first thing ideally is for the member of public to contain the bat uh, so there are detailed instructions on our website for that but but briefly in summary um they need to get a small box about sort of shoe box size with small holes punched in it for air um, ideally um it's best to try and contain the bat without touching it by placing the box on top of it and sliding a piece of card underneath like you might do for a spider but if that's not possible then you'd uh, cover the, the bat with a soft cloth uh, such as a tea towel and carefully scoop it up and, and place it in your your bat care box um, and we always say it's very important to wear gloves um, because there's a very very tiny risk um, that some bat species in the UK carry a, a type of rabies um, and bats aren't aggressive um, but as you as you know as a pet any animal when it's scared can bite or so we always, Any animal with a mouth can yeah. bite <laughs> in self-defense. So we just take a very precautionary approach on that. Um, and if you're not bitten and scratched, then there's, there's absolutely no risk. And then once it's contained, you can just pop it in pop in a tea towel or a soft cloth that's got something to hide, a few drops of water in a small container, um, very, a very small container because that's so tiny, so probably about the size of a milk bottle top. Um, and then once you've got it contained, then you can call up a helpline. It may be that we're able to advise over the phone, but um, in many cases... Uh, we'll put you in touch with local bat care volunteers from our, our UK bat care network. And these are absolutely fantastic, dedicated volunteers who rescue bats, bats in their own time. Um, and they give them the, the TLC or the, the treatment that they need um, and try to, to rehabilitate and release as many as they can. Um, and then when we don't have a local volunteer, then we would advise the caller to take the bat to the vet and it would, it would end up with you potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And we have uh, one of the, one of the nursing team or something who's like, into bats and, and we'll uh, look after it. I've met quite a few um, bat rehabilitators and they're uh, a breed onto themselves in terms of their passion and commitment to bats, I think. Most of anyway. And they're inc- so important in terms of engagement as well, because uh, well, yeah. as you know, seeing a bat flying is, is pretty amazing. But I think if, you, if you're if you a little bit nervous about bats or you don't know how tiny they are, if you've seen, if you've seen flying foxes in Australia and you're imagining that that's what's living in your roost, when when, when somebody actually sees a, a little bat in the hand, uh, it, it does change hearts and minds. It really does. So, they, yeah, they as well as helping bats directly, they do a huge amount of engagement and education work. Totally, yeah. The pipistrelles fit in a matchbox. People are always astonished at how tiny they are. They're tiny. Um, they're tiny. <laughs> I like to try yeah. and see them in the hand at least once every year or so, just to remind myself how tiny they are. Yeah, because I think that's one thing. Someone uh, messaged me the other day actually and sent me a video and said um, they were really big, and I always kind of like slightly roll my eyes because you hear it so often. Oh, they were really big bats, but it's because their their wing membrane is is quite large but their body size is actually tiny when you're seeing seeing the silhouette it might look much bigger than it is yeah i mean when they're, when they're in flight then what they look sort of sparrow size um and not to yours the and do actually look quite big when they're in flight but yeah once you see them in the hands it's a whole whole different kettle of fish or hand of bat yeah that's it <laughs> yeah so obviously like we've talked about the uk situation there's some good news there there's some populations are recovering and some are kind of um, stabilizing. But what is the global situation for bats? We we know um, we have a certain number of species, but we're discovering new ones all the time, aren't we? We are, yes. Yeah. So we know that we've got 1,400 species minimum globally. Um, and I, I have no doubt that we will discover more as more research is done. Uh, as I say, I think um, I, I seem to remember sort of 1,100, 1,000 um, when I started working with bats, so 
quite a few right. discovered in that time. Um, and and some of the habitats that they're in, it's really hard. They're quite inaccessible. So so you you know sort of some of those that are found in the sort of deep forests and things, they're, they're quite hard to find. And and although we do have bat workers in most countries, sometimes it's just a, a few a few individual people doing all that research. So I, I have no doubt that there is much much more to discover. Yeah. In terms of how they're doing. Uh, again, it, it differs hugely across species and across the countries, and in, in many cases, we just don't we just don't know how they're doing. Uh, but I, I do know that they're facing many of the same threats as our UK bats: so habitat loss and fragmentation, uh, agricultural practices, um, persecution. I think that's more of an issue in some yeah. countries than it is in the UK. Um, and then pesticides. Yeah, pesticides. And then in some countries, of course, they've got the added threat of being hunted for food as well. Um, happily don't have in the UK um, and in many yeah. countries they don't have the same level of protection that they're, they're not protected at all in some countries so um, I think uh, there are other countries where they the level of protection is is, is zero um, so yeah. that would make it quite difficult. Yeah and it brings us nicely on to the last topic which probably neither of us as bat conservationists want to talk about but they've got a lot of bad press this year yeah. uh, with the C word coronavirus. Yeah. Um, what, what do we know about that link? It's a bit, it's a bit tenuous at, at best, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, the, the short answer is we don't know for sure where COVID-19 comes from. Um, scientists do agree that COVID-19 is caused by a coronavirus from, a, from an animal. Um, but the animal source of SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus behind uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, hasn't yet been confirmed. It's likely to have its ancestral origins in a bat species, uh, but it we think it may have reached humans through an intermediate an intermediary species or it may have mutated yeah. within humans um so we we don't know for sure but i think the important thing to note is that the subsequent transmission of covid-19 is actually from person to person so it's yeah. it's, not, it's not you don't catch it from bats it's, it's it's unfortunately you catch it from people yeah yeah and how has um covid-19 lockdown and and uh, the pandemic affected you guys in bat conservation trust this year um, well, I think like most, most organisations, it's affected us in terms of majority of us have been working from home um, for the past mm. six, seven months. Uh, we've had we've recruited new staff. Um, I see we have seasonal staff on the helpline and they've they've come and gone without the majority of us actually ever meeting them. But we obviously met them yeah. online uh, um, and sort of had to train them through, train them completely remotely to, to answer the, the helpline and the helplines had to be sort of rooted through various mobiles at different people's houses so it's been quite it's been quite challenging operationally yeah uh, as you mentioned obviously the, the the media um and misinformation around covid19 has taken up quite a lot of time um it's been quite useful to work with our global colleagues sharing information and and approaches and frequently asked que- answers frequently asked questions and things like that so it's been good to, to work globally on that um, and then yeah. the other element of it is that we we don't yet know if um, if there's any possibility that bats can actually catch it from people. So we've had to look at that side of things as well, just to make sure that we are putting in mitigation, just in case there's any risk of bats catching catching it from people. So there's sort of been three prongs: there's the logistical stuff, then there's the kind of the and the activities. Um, and the misinformation and then there's kind of making sure that we're mitigating any possible risks uh, of it going yeah. into the bat population. Great yeah yeah it's a worry isn't it especially with this uh, mink story in Denmark is it yeah. lately that came out and 
yeah, transmitting it back to wildlife and then it mutating in wildlife and coming back and things like that. But yeah, yeah hopefully with um, it's unfortunately it's it's the whole pandemic has been caused by by human activities really, you know, altering yeah. the environment and, and bringing the the likelihood of wildlife and people coming into contact um but with with each other but also different species of wildlife. So yeah, it's 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 really unfortunate and it's human activity that led to it and, and it's gonna be changing human behaviour in relation to wildlife that's going to help prevent future pandemics. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, look, I think we could chat for another three hours about bats, you <laughs> and I, but um, the listeners might not uh, might not ch- tune in for that long. So it's been really great to have you on, Kate. It's uh, fascinating to talk to you about it. And there's loads more uh, we could talk about. But what would you kind of, for some for summary, what would you advise people if they want to get, interest, get into bats or help out with bat conservation down the line when we all have a bit more freedom? There's so many ways that people can get involved. We've we already talked about uh, the National Bat Monitoring Programme and there are other projects such as Bats in Churches and Bat from the Brink. Uh, we have volunteers on our Out of Hours helpline. Um, or you could join our campaign list um, and help by writing to your MP when critical policy issues come up. Of course, there's so much that people can do locally through their bat groups, um, education work, survey work, bat care and a multitude of other things. And there are really simple things that people can do, um, like gardening for bats or, or, or window boxing for bats, if you're not lucky enough to have a garden, uh, for yeah. boxes. Of course, joining BCT is a great way of helping bats or, or donating to our work. Um, and actually, one of the really important things that anyone can do without any equipment or any experience or expertise is just talking about bats, being an ambassador for them. Because we've talked yeah. about how they're very misunderstood. But the majority of times when people understand more um, or they see one in the hand, they're, they're really fascinated and they understand that importance. So actually, the easiest thing that anyone can do is to, to tell as many people as possible about how, how brilliant bats are. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, we're grow- we have a growing list of bat advocates uh, in <laughs> Ealing, um, all the buying their own bat detectors and all the rest. So, yeah, uh, we're putting out we're putting out the good batty word all the time. Don't uh, worry. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, Kate, look, thanks again. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you and um, hopefully we'll uh, maybe get out for a, a, a walking podcast maybe next year doing some batty activities. Excellent. Look forward to it. Great. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, guys, I would highly, highly encourage you to go along to the Bat Conservation Trust website. It is brilliant. It's absolutely packed full of bat facts and activities and resources. Um, and their YouTube channel is really good as well. Um, but do get involved, become a member. And as Kate said, there's loads and loads you can do in your local area um, for bats and anything you do for bats. The beauty is it'll be brilliant for other biodiversity as well. So um, as I said at the start, um, hit like and subscribe if you're enjoying this series of of Sean's Wildlife Podcast and we will see you in the next episode.